I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is security consultant and violence prevention expert, Bobby Bromfield. Bobby Bromfeld is on a mission to help end violence in our workplaces and communities. Currently a violence prevention strategist, Bobby is a former law enforcement detective and FBI Safe Streets Task Force member. Bobby is also a former Department of Defense Conflict Zone law enforcement advisor and a proud veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. Among his numerous corporate and community endeavors, Bobby contributes to an initiative that seeks to educate young men about toxic masculinity and an endeavor that tackles domestic violence. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. One, one hears the word violence, and you start to think about the physicality of that, some form of conflict and aggression that involves some kind of fighting uh, in physical format. But a lot of what you have seen in your uh, many facets of your career and a lot of what you deal with professionally to mitigate and control and prevent violence isn't necessarily to do just with the physical. So, so perhaps talk a little bit more about what are the kinds of ways that you define violence and, and how, how it sort of shows up in these workplaces. Mm. Well, the, the biggest, for me, the biggest form of violence is the, to be honest, is lack of communication, whether it's in the workplace or the community. That's the best starting point that any organization or any community can have is is to find a way to sit down and and build better communication strategies. Conflict is is good. There, you know, a lot of good comes out of conflict, but it has to be constructive. It has to be guided. It has to be controlled. And and you can't do that if you don't have good communication strategies. So we're we're really focused on building that that communication among humans, that human element is key. I can put cameras all over your building. We can software hardware. All those things can be put into place, but th- those, are all, those are all accessories to, to the human condition, to focusing on that human condition. If, if you have your human, the human side in place, everything else falls right into um, right, right where they're supposed to be. So that's what we really, really concentrate on is. Is building that human connection, building that communication. You know, I think it's fascinating that probably most people, when they think about the work you do or hear that initial description, probably what jumps to mind pretty quickly is this idea of the uh, security guard or security force or the people that bring in signs that that warn that the premises are being surveilled in some way by security cameras. Um, and then the cybersecurity, you also mentioned that too, so that, that there are ways to um, install firewalls and other cybersecurity measures. And that, I imagine, is what jumps to people's mind. And in some ways, you have said that, yes, you look at those sorts of things, but they're inevitably fairly blunt tools, it seems, because you're talking about other facets of violence prevention and security, such as human connection. How do you deal with the preconceptions that perhaps come from the nature of the work you're in and move beyond that so that you're actually dealing with much more um, root causes? Well, it, it is a struggle uh, getting people to understand uh, that the effort has to be put on the, the human side. I look at it even in my days in the military in um, 
Let's take Afghanistan, for instance. Uh, we spent a lot of time drinking tea. And the goal was if I can have a cup of tea with you, I don't have to send a Cobra gunship over here to take out, you know, future threats. Of course, you, you know, you're not going to use gunships in corporate America, but you you still have those those threats that can be mitigated by by building your security stance around the human condition, by building your security structure around people first. I tell people all the time, you can put a million dollars worth of hardware uh, into a building, but if your people don't care about their coworkers, if your people don't care about uh, the mission of your company, the brand, they're going to do just enough to get by. If they're only there for that paycheck, they're going to do just enough to get by. So uh, it's touchy-feely, and, and people see my background and think that, you know, hey, we're going to throw elbows. Well, not at all. You know, um, we need to build that structure on, on the human condition. Human connection is your security. What do corporations typically think their problem is when they reach out to you for advice and consulting and, and strategy around security and um, violence prevention? And how do you move them past that initial preconception that it's a certain thing, such as a camera or some piece of software? Typically, when people call me, there's, there's two times. Uh, one is when they've already had an incident. So we're doing a lot of backtracking. When the media has an active shooter that's, that's um, a high-profile active shooting, then, of course, everyone wants active shooter training, but they're all planning for that ISIS attack. You know, not that those attacks can't happen. Terrorism is real. But if we're going to do active shooter, let's, let's do active shooter based on what may, you know, the, prob- the probability of it happen at, at your location. And the vast majority of the time, there's going to be a disgruntled employee or it's going to be some intimate partner violence that came to work. So, uh, but let's make sure that we're planning for the right threat. The same with, with this high-tech hardware. A lot of times, leadership is looking at security uh, hardware, software as that, that magic bullet. Uh, there's no magic bullet in security. And you can, you know, going back to what I said earlier, you can have the most sophisticated equipment. But if you don't have, you know, we want leadership to understand that if, if your people's head or, uh, heads are not in the game, it, you're wasting money. If you have a, a group of people who legitimately care about each other, who have been trained on what what threats are most probable, who have a clear pathway for reporting uh, w- with the group that's been trained to respond, you can keep your place a lot more secure than just w- without cameras and without access controls and without because people are going to look out for each other. And it's the same with communities. A lot of communities wait. They feel that the police is, are there to solve the problems, and it, unfortunately, the, the police are response. It takes that community to solve the problem, but it takes leadership within those communities to to pull people together and identify what their threats are, so that they can communicate that to the police, and then the police can respond appropriately and and help deter. Security boils down to the fact that leaders have to step up and put their people first, not not just it can't just be a, a model. It has to be some action actually put behind it. 
We're recording this at the uh, at the end of January, and I don't know the exact data, but there have already been a number of school shootings uh, this year. These are the kinds of things that you 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 are tackling in in both workplaces and communities. You, you look at a school shooting. To me, there's no difference between a school shooting and a disgruntled employee. You have someone there who has a right to be on location who somewhere along the line developed some serious animosities, whether it's toward the institution or someone in the institution. And people there were either not trained to recognize those things or someone dropped a ball. The, the whole it happened out of the blue is, is just it's nonsense. It never happens out of the blue. Uh, you know, if there's a robber that comes in to rob the place, okay, maybe out of the blue. But it, the vast majority of the time, there are signs, and we have to do a better job of educating our coworkers on what those signs are, but more importantly, uh, educating them on why it's important that they understand those signs, why it's important to, to actually care about that coworker. We have to do a better job of giving them clear avenues of reporting. Telling on people is uncomfortable. And, and a lot of us feel that, hey, we, I don't want to get into, you know, Stuart's business. That's got nothing to do with me. Well, well, it does. We're a community here. If I have a clear pathway of reporting that I think you may be dealing with some issues where I'm not concerned about, you know, it getting back to, to you, I, I think more people would be, I would be more open to reporting that, hey, I think he's a little bit, you know, he's, he's acting a little differently. He's acting a little stranger. I would recognize that because my leadership has taken the time for us to know who each other are. A lot of leadership sees that as we need you to come and do your job and, and yeah, we'll do some employee engagement videos. And, and then when the shooting happens, it's like, oh my God, it happened. It was just out of the blue. curriculum V-Day that most of these uh, employers will see represents you, of course, with your pedigree as a veteran in the Marine Corps, as a law enforcement officer, um, both police and FBI. And so I think it speaks to some of these um, disproportionate perspectives that we have, and we're expecting a certain type of attitude and a certain type of manliness, as it were, from, from you. And this, from your experience, you've learned that this is not the way forward. It has to be something that's much more grounded in human connection. Those expectations are built on what security professionals, um, how we present ourselves. 
you know, a lot of times it's getting better, but for a long time it was the the tough guy image or they led with terrorism, 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 terrorism. You know, let me scare you into bringing me on board so I can secure this place and make your, you know, this is going to be a hard target when I'm finished. And all that makes sense in certain spaces, but not everywhere. Um, you know, you can talk to Marines like that, you know, that they're going to battle. But if if Gloria is working in payroll, she's not trying to become a paratrooper. She's not trying. You, you're going to scare her. You're going to shut her down. You're going to she's not going to want to deal with it, which means she's not going to be a, as observant. So a, a lot of the problems in it is directly on this uh this warrior mentality that we go into these corporations and communities with um when when we should go in with more of a of a um a servant mentality or a a guardian mentality which is you know completely different we've touched a little on your previous careers leading up to this work it probably makes sense to ask you a little bit about your upbringing and then we can talk just a little bit about about your career experience so so what was your upbringing like it was fun. Uh, <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I grew up in the South um, between uh, Texas and Mississippi, moved to Omaha. And, and actually, I'm an Omaha and now I've lived here longer than anywhere. Uh, but it was a great childhood. I think I got um, I got the bug to be a Marine super early in life because I, I knew at like seven, eight years old, I wanted to be in the Marine Corps. Um, I knew I wanted to go into law enforcement. I, you know, I kind of, you know, the the odd kid that had every the, the, his life plan written out at at ten. Security has always been a, a huge piece of, um, you know, what what I wanted to do. I got involved early in martial arts, even though we weren't allowed to fight. I, I found out quickly that I could defend people, so uh, and not get in trouble for getting in a fight when I got home. So. I, I kind of walked around looking for people who needed to be defended. Uh, <laughs> uh, but great childhood. Nothing scarred me into going to into going into uh, the fields I chose. Um, I, I just, you know, I was all I've always wanted to to do it, and I just had the opportunity to, to be able to pull it off. So, what prompted you to join uh, the Marine Corps? You, you know, I, I always wanted to be a Marine. Uh, and then I can remember when I when I had it in my head that this is what I'm going to do is after the uh, the Marine Corps barracks in Beirut were was bombed, and I remember watching that on television. But it was it was something about the response, something about the way the Marines were talking about uh, the incident that I, I was like, wow. With all this going on, these guys are still pretty like you know like bring it on, we're ready, and I, I want to be a part of that. So. So that's what actually made me uh, decide, yeah, I am definitely going to, to join. What prompted you to exit the Marine Corps and, and not stay in for longer? What prompted you to leave and then join the police force? I, I wanted to be a cop. And, and um, you know, w- with the Marines, I had an, uh, some amazing experiences. But I went in young. Uh, I was 17 when I went into the Marine Corps. And after I, I'd done it, you know, my goal was to stay in the reserve, but I wanted to be a police officer. So I initially went to Houston 
and my goal is to, to become a police officer there. But I was lucky enough to get called uh, back to Omaha and, and test, and, and I got on here, and, and that's where my career began. So what was the lure of being in law enforcement? Uh, again, I, I, you know, I wish I could tell you, you know, um, you know, ever since I was a kid, it was, you know, Marine, um, law enforcement. Um, and, and there was some there was some some pretty tough cops in, in my neighborhood that had some really good that tough guy um, reputations. But I never saw any of that. They were always super nice to us. So, you know, but um, uh, Lewis and Officer Sewell and, um, you know, they, they were just bigger than life, you know, to a little kid. They were like 15 feet tall and just firm with us all the time. But they were really good guys. So I, I think they probably had a lot to a lot to do with the decision or the want to be a police officer. Your bio mentions that you were involved as a member of the FBI's Safe Streets Task Force. What was that about? It was a great experience. Uh, I did a lot of work uh, with the police department. I was in the homicide unit, uh, gang unit, uh, street-level narcotics unit. So when, when um, the FBI decided to start a, a Safe Streets Task Force, is what they called it, which basically concentrated on violent crimes. They recruited um, two officers from the police department, uh, officers from DEA, state patrol. So it was a combined agency uh, initiative, and, and it's still around. I, I was lucky enough, uh, one, for them to be interested in bringing me on, and, and, and two, uh, to, to make the cut for the police department. So, uh, so I, I went there, and, and it, it was just an amazing amazing experience you know um it gave you the opportunity to actually build cases rather than run from one to the next one to the next like you have to do as in law enforcement which unfortunately a lot of people just don't know it gave you the opportunity to actually take the time to see who the bad guy is what the core issue is and once you identify that core issue then you the fbi had to, you know they gave you the resources so that you can really hone in on it and and with one or two, three good arrests, the entire neighborhood was safe. So I I love that piece of it. Um, just a, a great learning experience. Uh, training in Quantico, doing all those. You know, it, it was just a great great experience. You said earlier that, and you just alluded to this just now about what people don't know about the police and law enforcement. And earlier you mentioned that the police is inherently a responsive institution. We don't set the police force up to be responsive to the community as part of the community. They're always called in after the event, so they're not building up those community relations. Is that something that you took away from your experience in law enforcement? And how does your experience in law enforcement influence the work you do now? I think law enforcement has evolved quite a bit since when I first started. There is a lot of work that needs to be done on a on a community level. I still hear a lot of uh, law enforcement officers talk. You know, we're warriors, and you know, we have to go in and you know, we're you know, we're at war with crime on the street. And I, I never looked at it as though I was a, a warrior getting ready to go out on a combat patrol. Uh, it, there's absolutely no way you can tie the two together. 
But I think that mentality has kind of, um, you know, officer safety is important. So you have to have that that mindset that I'm going to get through whatever happens. But I think more and more and more we're learning that a lot of the bad things that happen uh, may not happen if we have a stronger relationship with the communities that we patrol. If we take the time and, and that's the issue, you know, you have to make the time really because depending on what area you're working in, you, your radio is going nonstop. So it's hard to really stop and chit chat with kids or chit chat with a mom or it, it's hard to do that. Some of my greatest successes came from tips from concerned citizens who just who were comfortable enough to approach me. If they're not comfortable enough to approach you as an officer, then you you are going to be reactive. You are it's going to force you to to come to that crime after it happens when they when someone with information wanted to tell you but but was not comfortable enough to do it. I think here in Omaha we have great leadership with our police department. I think I, I think there's some great leadership there. I, I think that work is being done to to really build a stronger connection with the, the community and the police. And and it's a give and take. The community has to, you know, there, there's certain things the community has to do that, you know, we're not doing either. And, and that boils down to leadership. You have to have strong community leadership. You have to have strong law enforcement uh, leadership. And I think for the most part, Omaha is sitting okay. It's all right. Uh, it's better than a lot of places. I think that that gap can be bridged, particularly with the chief that we have now. You know, the phrase that keeps coming to my mind is hearts and minds. And obviously it can be abused and misapplied and misunderstood in various contexts. But I think I first came across it in a military context. And that military context was that you would never win the battle on the ground unless you establish some kind of relationship with the people amongst whom this conflict was raging. And I think the same holds true for any kind of conflict resolution or law enforcement unless you have some attempt at the hearts and minds. Uh, same with the workplace too. Uh, unless you have hearts and minds on board, then inevitably uh, there's no bedrock on which you can prevent violence. Mm-hmm. In the Marine Corps, we had a saying, um, no worse enemy, no greater friend. And it's hearts and minds is hard. You know, it's it's easy to go in and and tear up. You know, you, you have the capability to do it. It's easy to, to set a policy in that says, you know, you will not do this in the workplace. And if it happens, you're fired. But it's harder to go in and, and build, you know, and say, this is the policy. This policy is in place because of these issues. This is why we need you to get on board with it. This is, you know, to go that extra mile and and bring everybody in, you know, so that now they're looking at it like rather than I got a policy that's, you know, I got um, policy that is standing over my shoulder that can get me thrown out of the door. Now they see it as a policy that's enabling them to help their coworker. I know by reading this policy that I can do all these things that are going to really help. And I wanted to help because I care for that person. I wanted to help because I believe in this brand, what we're doing. I want to get out on the street and make that time to talk to the people in the community that I patrol. Because, I mean, let's face if I'm laying on my back in the backyard somewhere, I want people willing to run out and help me. I want people willing to run out and 
you know, at least get on the phone and say, hey, look, you know, send more over here. And, and that's happened. I've, I mean, I've been in fights where civilians had to come over and grab an arm. Um, and I appreciate it. You know, if you don't build those relationships, people are just not going to be comfortable going that extra mile to meet you if you're not going that extra mile. And, and I think it's on law enforcement. I think it's on leadership to make those steps, those first steps. I mean, we're the guys with the guns. We're the guys that's holding the paychecks. We're the guys in charge. We have to make that that first move. And when that happens, you know, you have community, you have employees come around. You know, um, I don't want to get political on you, but I, I think one of the biggest mistakes that America has made over the last few years has been we've been very military heavy versus humanitarian. Most of the places I went to as a Marine, I went to to secure an area to drop food off, to, to bring doctors in, to, you know, to humanitarian aid. Yeah, we were ready, but the goal was the mission was humanitarian. And I, I just don't see a lot of that happening anymore from, you know, from the, the U.S. And I, I think that's what gave us our power. That's what gave us the reputation that we have versus this. You know, I'm going to send a drone and shoot everything up mentality that we seem to have now. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is security consultant and violence prevention expert, Bobby Bromfield. What is toxic masculinity? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And when we talk about MADVAC, which is the, the group we're in, uh, myself and Charlie Vendetti, who's another retired police officer, when we first started uh, MADVAC, we were looking for, for ways that we can, you know, we can make the most impact. 
and that masculinity piece of it was huge. We both worked uh, in law enforcement and, and we saw how this warped sense of masculinity took some great, smart young men down the wrong path. It's a moving target because you can take a healthy trait, masculinity trait, and warp it to the point or use it in a way where it's not healthy anymore. So I, tr I try not to, to get involved into telling people this is toxic, this is unhealthy, this is healthy. You know, that's Bobby's version of, of masculinity. When we talk to young men, we, we ask them to give us their opinion of unhealthy and then give us their opinion of healthy. And then we try to meet in the middle and we always ask that question, why is it so much easier for us to act on the the unhealthy part versus the the healthy part. And it, it goes back to what we said earlier about leadership. You know, it's 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 hard when in hearts and minds it's easier to, to do the tough guy thing. And it, it's the same with masculinity. You know, you got music supporting your bad decisions, you got TV supporting your bad decisions, video games, uh, and and that lack of leadership, whether it's home or just in a community all supporting these bad decisions. So we're trying to tell these young men, hey, look, it's not going to be easy, but this is what's going to make you a leader later on down the road. This is what's going to help you out later on down the road by making this this hard decision to walk away, by taking the time to learn how to, to de-conflict. We'll ask a question. Um, you know, we, we give scenarios uh, and say there's a scenario where just something really simple. If, if you're at a, you know, you're at the gas station and, and you know, you, you're walking out and someone bumps into you and they're fairly rude, you know, as men, particularly in, in, in my community, it was like from zero to aggression. There was no in between. Uh, you disrespected me. Now I have to show you that that can never be done again. And, and now one of us is hurt. What we try to do is say, all right, let's take a moment and, and in a perfect world, what should happen? You know, and, and we'll just jot those down and, and let them walk through it. We don't tell them what, what, what would happen, what should happen, you know, and, and they'll, they'll tell you. They, we all know it, but it's just so much easier to, to go from zero to aggression. So they'll write those things down and, and we'll just ask that question. Why aren't we doing it? You know, um, when it comes to violence against women, why are we doing things that we know uh, would get us in trouble? Even or, or bigger question is, why aren't we intervening uh, when we see our peers calling her names or, you know, when I get home, I'm going to choke her or, you know, I'm going to put this in her drink and. Or she's already drunk, so I'm going to take advantage. Why aren't we saying no? You know, that's a rapist move. You know, why aren't we calling each other out? And and it, it, it's it's hard, um, particularly it's, it's hard for grown men. So it's really hard for these young men who are just surrounded by, you know, they're getting this music pumped into their ears, put a molly in her drink and all this other craziness. We have to empower them to be leaders. We have to empower them to to take that hard line and say, no, this is not right. This is what I'm gonna do. And and even if you if it's not safe for you to step in and do it, at least I'm gonna report it. I don't see anything wrong with reporting it. I'm a, you know, 
a man would report this. You can show, and these young men can understand, the toxic responses that you talked about. But given that they are surrounded by a context, both culturally, socially, away from the classroom, where these other pressures are applied, that it becomes, it must be incredibly difficult for young men, that it's very hard for them to step away from that kind of behavior anyway. It, it is. Um, there's strength in numbers, and, and right now the numbers is on that toxic <coughs> side, that unhealthy side. It, it's going to be a slow process, um, and, and I think we would be much further if it wasn't just women um, fighting the fight for so long. I think nationally, more men are starting to see our, our, our place in it, uh, where we need to uh, get involved. And it's, it, to be honest with you, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy for us because women have been, they basically laid the groundwork saying, hey, look, you know, now we just need you to get these young men to start following the path. So um, those numbers are going to have to build up. And, and the more and more and more young men we can get involved, the easier and easier and easier the message is going to become. But you, you're going up against billion-dollar businesses, you know, music. They don't want to hear a gospel rapper right now. They don't want to hear a, a feel-good rapper. They want to hear that gangster. Rock. I mean, all of these things. Uh, TV, you know. Um, but, you know, you see so many shows now that, um, you know, just macho, 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 macho. And then when you, if these guys were actually, and, and I'll use SEALs, but if they were to meet a SEAL or meet a special operator in any branch, the vast majority I've ever worked with have always been like super laid back, you know, that there's nothing for them to prove. If you bump into them at the gas station, they're going to be, oh, I'm sorry. You know, the money is in that that negative side of it, that toxic side of it. So that's what we're we're fighting against. That's that's what we need to to turn around. And, and I think it's going to happen. The more people, we, the more young men we get involved, the more numbers we get on our side, the easier to be. A better man to my baby. Give mm-hmm. me all good love. I was singing with them Jezebels under perfume sheets. Mm-hmm. Got a golden smile. Heart overflowing with kindness and love. But it wasn't enough. What can I do? What can I do? To get back to your heart I'd swim the Mississippi River If you would give me another start, girl All night long I was out Out to the morning But baby, you're tender when I'm longing, baby, please, I'm down on my knees, baby. Ooh, I thirst for you, girl. Baby, I'm running to your well. What can I do? What can I do to get back to your heart? I'd swim the Mississippi River if you would give me another start, girl. 
So let me ask you then, how are you finding these young men? Is it typically through working with schools? Is is that how you're getting into environments that um, you know a lot of these young men congregate, and you can you, you can find them with these with these uh, workshops? Well, what we're doing is teaming with the existing organizations. Um, you know, there's a a lot of great groups, like particularly uh, women's groups. Uh, that have already been out there. They're already in schools. They're, you know, so we're doing a lot of piggybacking. We work uh, very closely with the WCA. Um, they are like the biggest organization here uh, in regards to domestic violence. We work really closely with them. They, we, we got all our education on domestic violence uh, through them. Initially, it was with the Domestic Violence uh, Coalition, but they're no longer around. So we moved over. Uh, to uh, the WCA, to, to that's where we get our foundational training from to understand DV, power and control, all those things that make uh, that answers that question. That question: Why does she stay? Uh, we get all that information through them. Uh, you have Heartland Family Services, who's out there doing a lot of work in the domestic violence, sexual assault side. Um, Women's Fund of Omaha is doing a tremendous amount of work in trafficking. Um, set me free. There's so many different organizations out there that, that we can work with. And the way our organization is built is each one of us kind of, um, we take it, we, we educate ourselves and then we go out into our own communities and, and spread it. Um, so for me, I do a lot of, a lot of speaking in the black community. There's uh, Black Men United, 100 Black Men of Omaha. There's just a, a lot of organizations out there that are already, already have these kids in front of them. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We just meet with these organizations and say, hey, look, this is this is some of the, the stuff that we can we can bring to whatever it is you're currently doing. You mentioned before that a lot of the groundwork in reshaping our identities, either as women or men, has been laid by uh, women's groups. And of course, at the moment, the Me Too movement and um, Time's Up movement and this rejection of what I think have been going on for millennia, uh, the, the, the mistreatment of women in, in all sorts of environments and contexts by men. Clearly, this isn't really a female problem It's in that context. It's really a, a male problem that we happen to inflict upon women, but they've had to do the hard work of trying to rectify it. So what kind of response are you getting from these female groups when you reach out to them? and explain that you're trying to approach some of these challenges from the male point of view? The vast majority of the time, the, the response we get is it's about time. You know, where have you guys been for the last, you know, 30 years? You know, it's about time. And you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, Jackson Katz, um, who's, who works, uh, he, he's been doing uh, this kind of work for years, you no, know, he he first he or he's he's the person that I first heard say this is a man's domestic sexual violence is a man's issue. Y yes, it can have a man can be a victim, but the vast majority of the time, women are victims, men are the offenders. So that has to be the starting point. And is it only makes sense that men are holding other men responsible? You know, we can. You know, we can make a guy feel bad for, for not being a Saints fan um, because everyone should be a Saints fan. Um, we can make a guy feel bad for, for not supporting our team, but 
when he's abusive, we get silent and, and we have to change that when, you know, there, there's a, a question of, um, you know, she, she's, you know, why, why does she get beat rather than, you know, why is this man beating her? The stigma, even in the workplace, the stigma is always on the victim. So many women are not comfortable reporting what they're going through at the, in the workplace because the workplace, a lot of times are saying, hey, look, that's a home issue. You keep that at home. Don't bring that here. Uh, a lot of times the workplace is the only place where she's free enough to to seek help. And it's not like it's really going to cost you a ton of money to have resources available because all of these groups, you can reach out to all these groups around Omaha that works with domestic and sexual violence. And they'll come to you and give you that information on how you can best help her. So um, it has to be male driven, not that we need to take over the movement, um, but it has to be a, a male focus on it. You know, unfortunately, the vast majority of leadership in corporate America are men. And we have to get into those offices and say, look, you know, it's time to do better by your employees, by women in, in general. And I think it's happening. It's happening too slowly, but I think it is happening. What are some of those causes behind male violence that, that you're hoping to uh, prevent by reaching young men early? And if it is too late, what are some of the warning signs that you might see perhaps in your workplace? Well, the causes of abuse, um, causes of abuse is abuse of men. Uh, we can say poverty is a factor, but it happens in rich communities. We can say, you know, we can give a million and one reasons why a man just is so fra He has anger management problems. So, no, no, he doesn't. He has a, an abuse problem. We all face anger, uh, but we don't target those that we say we love. We don't we don't hold that rage in until we get home and, and beat our wives. So it's not an anger management problem. It's not a poverty problem. It's, it's not, you know, I, I think that cycle is very, very strong. I think if, if the one thing that, that will ring true in all of this is that if a if a young man grew up watching his father or stepfather, mom's boyfriend, whoever, the male figure in his life being abusive and getting what he wants because of that abuse, then, yes, this is an extremely high likelihood that he's going to come up doing that. Uh, we're trying to jump in the middle of that cycle and, and put disconnect that circle. We, we want to be a barrier where we can jump in at any point, whether you are fourth grade, which is where we start, or an adult, you know, jump in and, and, and give them opportunities or, or give, them, give them the tools that they need to uh, go a different route than the abusive route. I think the, the workplace, for me, just working in, in workplace violence, I think it only makes sense on the adult side that that, that work happens in the workplace and, 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 go, and grows out into the community. I think the workplace is is key to, to putting an end to all this violence. The one thing that the vast majority of us have in common is that we have to get up and go to work to make a living. And if the workplace can add um, resources available for a victim or survivor of domestic violence or sexual assault, it can touch 
so many more people than expecting them to track down a facility that may be able to help them, especially when this guy is tracking her every move. The, the workplace is the one place where she's alone long enough to to seek help. And, and it also makes sense because if you're forcing her to hide the fact that she has a dangerous individual in her household and she may have made the decision or she may not have even made the decision, but he may have made the decision that today is the day. He's going to be the one that's going to come into your workplace with the gun. He's going to be the one that's going to come in raising havoc and you're not going to know anything about it because you didn't put any mechanisms or pathways in place for her to report it to you. You forced her to hold that information internally. So now everyone is at risk. So I just, it just, for me, especially uh, working in, in workplace violence, it only makes sense uh, to put those, uh, those avenues in place to, to, to get them some help. And it's, it's just not an issue of cost because there's just too many resources out there that are free. So clearly this is a, a tough subject. We've been talking about conflicts, sometimes violent conflict. But let's finish with this question. What is it that gives us hope today and for tomorrow? Uh, I'm I'm a fan of I'm a fan of humanity. I think that the, this the the millennials, this younger generation, actually um, they have their finger on something. They're demanding more of their workplace. They're demanding more of of their governments uh, on a you know on a on a human level. I'm a capitalist. I, I, I believe in making money, um, but money shouldn't be the number one thing in, in business. And, and the younger generation feels that same way. Um, so for me, I, I think humans are going to get it together. I think an, enough of us have said, OK, enough is enough. Let's let's get back on the right track. It's good to spend time with optimists like you, Bobby. <laughs> so thank you for that. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.